All right, well, it's good to see everybody this morning, and um, we will just jump right in. So if you would, please open your Bibles to the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 13 and 14 for the coming weeks. Actually, don't go to Acts first. Go to 2 Corinthians 11 first. Let's begin there. That would be a good place to give us a running start for Acts 13 and 14 in one sense. As you know, when we're in a fellowship group like this, we, um, we certainly want to have all the, the elements of preaching of the Word, but we want to also have dynamics where we can engage and talk through things. I wanted to pose a question to you as we began that I think um, when we get to Acts 13 and 14, which we'll probably spend a number of weeks in, which is really Paul's first missionary journey, uh, Luke's going to include this in the book of Acts as just one big section. So if you're trying to categorize in your mind Paul's first missionary journey, Acts 13 and 14 is Paul's first missionary journey. We'll be back to that in a moment, but let me read a section of Scripture to you in 2 Corinthians 11. And as I'm reading it, I want to pose a question to you just before I read it, I should say. And the question is this. What areas in the church today even do you think Satan has been most effective in distorting people's thinking from what it looks like to just purely and most sincerely and most faithfully follow Christ. And I ask that because of the comment Paul makes in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 3 and following and then down in 14-15. Notice Paul's heart here in 2 Corinthians 11 verses 3 and 4, and Paul's going to be the main feature in our study in the coming weeks, and he wrote what really burdened his heart as he thought about ministry. Verse 3, 2 Corinthians 11, But I am afraid, and I never get over that comment in 2 Corinthians 11, 3, nothing scared Paul. <laughs> the guy is beaten, shipwrecked, abused, abandoned, betrayed, slandered, and yet something terrified him that was very significant. Here's what he was afraid of. As the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, he goes back to the garden and considers the serpent, Satan, his craftiness and what he's after. Here's what I'm concerned about for the church. As the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, by his manipulation, by his subtleties, by his ability to frame up something as, as looking right, but it's actually an error. As I'm concerned about that. And particularly, notice where he's concerned Satan is going to most target and where he's going to most try and confuse. I'm concerned, as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, that your minds... Now, a believer's mind cannot be touched by Satan if you are a true born-again child of God. The evil world cannot speak into your thought life. There's nowhere in Scripture that teaches that. However, through false teaching, through poor examples through circumstances that come about where evil and the onslaught of it comes at you, where people introduce subtleties of error, he can get to your mind through bad teaching, through bad instruction in the church, and that's Satan's target. That you will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And that would mean that you'd be led astray from what Christ wants you to do with your time and how He wants you to spend your life and how He wants you to think. And then he goes on, for if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we've not preached, or you receive a different spirit whom you've not received, a different gospel which you've not accepted, you bear this beautifully, for I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. And he just goes on to defend himself a bit with Corinth. But then notice 
he goes on. Look at verses 14 and 15. He describes how Satan infiltrates church life. For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Now just consider that. Satan's greatest work is to come in and present himself as if he is righteous and holy and this is the right way, but introduce just enough air that it still looks like truth, but it actually gets you to drift. That's his aim. It's an angel of light. He wants to look like this is right, so he has to have enough there that looks angelic, we could say godly, but also enough air to get you to drift. Therefore, it is not surprising, verse 15, if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. That is to say, Satan's always trying to send teachers into the church to undermine pure and simple devotion to Christ. So let me ask you, what do you think are some main stream ways that Satan's been most able to infiltrate and bring air into just modern evangelicalism and we could even say this, and even sometimes introduce air that even good men that are well-meaning and sincere become sincerely wrong and teach the wrong things, even though they're not messengers of Satan. They were introduced wrong doctrine and they bought it. Yeah? You don't have to follow the commands of Christ. You can just live how you will and God loves you anyway. Yeah, I wrote a view of sanctification that costs you nothing but promises you freedom. Yeah, that's been introduced to the church. Yeah, just go ahead, shoot them off. Yeah, God's word is not enough in our contemporary world to take on life's problems, so we need man-made wisdom. Yep, Mike. Truth is subjective. Truth is subjective. It's not something outside of us that calls us to come under it. It's something we evaluate. It's truthiness, some have said. And if we think it's truthy, then it's truth. Yeah, so we become the authority. Yeah. Rebecca. So Satan would introduce the idea that you can live for the world and still call yourself a Christian. Yep, that's great. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so that was great. No, what you said, the importance of the structure of the church and body life. I wrote down... A view of the church that's less than biblical, that, or a view of the church that we've replaced a biblical structure of church life with man-made uh, strategies or man-made structure, something we've introduced that's different than the Bible. Yeah, what else? Katie. Oh, that's good. Distorted roles of men and women. Yeah, man, that's a good one. Yep. Cameron. Yeah, you could say this. We add baggage to words like worship and, and, or we take away the full significance of them and we make them mean something different. And that would be that worship is somehow some visceral emotional experience instead of Romans 12, 1 and 2 all of your life. Yeah. Yep. Just shoot them off. Yeah. Yeah. How about this? Evaluating a church's success and faithfulness based on perceived audience response. So then you don't preach sin so you can say we have a really successful church because look how many people like us. Yep. Yeah, you have power over your own life. Mike? Yeah. Joshua Harris. Church. 
Yeah. Yeah, totally defeated. Yep, and totally abandoned the faith as an apostate this week. Left his wife and then abandoned the faith. If you haven't read that, that's Joshua Harris. So we lift up men without scrutinizing their character. And if there's leaks in their life because they're successful, because they have books, and because they're an author, yeah. Yeah, I always wondered when he headed off to a liberal seminary what, what was in his heart. Yeah. Yep. Sad. I think it's, uh, for us, a lot of it comes down to there's so much pressure to like, not be so serious about the word. <laughs> that's, that's why I think in our circle we probably struggle a lot more with it. Yeah. Where it's not like, hey, we're, we're going to rely on the scripture, we're going back to the doctrine, but it's there's so much pressure from people um, saying, oh, well, why are you guys so serious about this? And it just, just loosen up a little bit too. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny when we see Peter today deal with the false teacher in Acts. I mean, the language he uses when the Spirit takes him over uh, could not be more serious. But yeah, I think we live in a culture where the tone police are always out, and so we get a little gun shy. Yeah, and yet you look at your Bible and you think of how Jesus dealt with air sometimes, and we don't want to ever be belligerent or unkind, but we also want to realize that Christ's heart against air and confusion. Yeah. I bring all that up, beloved, because when we study the book of Acts, I invite you to turn back to Acts 13. I appreciated all of your comments. They were spot on. I want you to appreciate, when you consider the book of Acts, why it's included in your canon. I want you to just think with me for a second. If Paul's heart is that he's concerned about believers' minds and hearts and affections and will in the slightest way being distorted and moving away from pure and simple devotion to Christ, I think we could make a case that two areas of doctrine today on, on, the, on, the, on the surface, they're all equal to probably what you all brought up, but two that probably most rise to the surface as we consider Acts is a biblical ecclesiology. What is the local church? What is its role? What is its function? What's it supposed to look like? And a view of missions. No one brought up missions. We call all kinds of things missions today that have nothing to do with New Testament missions. In fact, I was thinking so often if the Apostle Paul would have been consulted as a mentor for many mission endeavors, he would say, you may be going somewhere, but that's not missions. <laughs> You may have a big heart that wants to reach people, and I'm grateful for that, but that's not what the Spirit commissioned me to do, and I was the first pioneer missionary. And I just think we have to bring all of this confusion back under the scrutiny of Scripture. And so if you think about Acts, now think about Acts with me. Let's transport us, and let's envision everybody here, knowing Paul's heart, is that we wouldn't be led astray. Let's say that we're a new church plan on, the, on the, you know, the, the tip of northern Italy, and the Gospels just got to us, and we're in 74 AD. So Scripture's still being produced um, and, and brought out by apostles and prophets. Um, we've got a lot of our canon coming together. We're learning lots of things. We've got our new church plant. People, missionaries that we call them, have come and shared the Gospel in our area, and people were saved, and a church was born. And we're sitting and we're saying, okay, what should this look like for us in 
local church life. And what should we do to continue to propagate well, the benefits that we have of being actually a new church in this area? Well, the book of Acts and Luke went around as one document. So Acts, Acts of the Apostles, was with Luke, and it was one document, both written by Luke. And the purpose of those, if you go back to uh, Luke chapter 1 and Acts 1, is, is really this. Luke is writing the most excellent Theophilus. So the recipient of this letter would have been seemingly this, um, this person in some type of uh, legal authority, possibly. Maybe someone that was going to be part of Paul's court case when he's on trial, representing him to some level. But, but what's interesting, and I want you to hear this, Luke makes this comment, if you combine Acts 1 and Luke 1, I'll just summarize it for you. He makes this comment, I'm writing to you, most excellent Theophilus, so you know the exact truth. It's a word that describes fortifying convictions, solidifying what you believe, so you will not be confused and you will know how to stand. So when you read Luke and you read Acts, it's the story of Christ, His life, His death, His burial, His resurrection, His ascension. And then when Christ leaves, what's the church to do? Well, He sends out His apostles. And the book of Acts describes what it ought to look like to do New Testament missionary work and New Testament church life during that time in redemptive history. And so when we read Acts and we come to the book of Acts, we need to realize that the goal of us studying this is back in what I just mentioned about Paul. That we'd have the exact truth and the exact clarity and the exact convictions and we'd be warned where we need to be warned and encouraged where we need to be encouraged and we'd know how everything unfolded so that we would not drift and be led astray from pure and simple ecclesiology and pure and simple missiology, missions and the church. We use the term missions. They didn't even have that in the book of Acts. They just would have said, these are the people sent out by local churches to go and bring the word and establish more churches. And that's where we're really at, beloved, in Acts 13 and 14. We've really come to the section of the book of Acts where we're going to consider really two, maybe three years of the Apostle Paul's life. Two, maybe three years of the Apostle Paul's life. But what's crazy, if you think about it, how many volumes would one have to write to cover two to three years of the Apostle Paul's first missionary journeys? I don't know. It'd be a lot, right? And in fact, Paul in this section is going to cover somewhere around 1,600 miles by boat and by foot. He's covering a lot of ground. And we're probably roughly, if the book of Acts is roughly 30, 32 years long, so when you read Acts sometimes, we don't realize that the book of Acts is probably covering 30 years. We're going to cover two years of it, and we're probably 15 years in. So we're 15 years old in the church. The church of Jerusalem is born, and it starts to spread out. And Paul is going to be sent out in a second to go to other churches. But back up and think about this. If Luke, inspired by the Spirit, needs to capture the first missionary journey, and the goal of that is to solidify in our mind the exact truths we need to know so we can stand firm, then whatever details Luke includes over this two years are the most important details that the Spirit of God wants us to be thinking about. So think about that. There's a lot of things that Luke could include, but what he includes is what we need to focus on. And so in Acts 13 and 14, we're going to have one big outline. And we're just going to work through it in the next couple weeks. And it is this. Luke records eight, and I know I'm getting a little wordy here, but I'll explain it. Eight specific conviction-building occasions. <laughs> eight specific conviction-building occasions 
of the early church's first organized missionary effort. And I say specific convicting building occasions because whatever Luke includes is what he wants all of redemptive history to look back on and say, here's what, to use our terminology, the first missionaries did. Here was their goal, their aim, how they spent their time, the struggles they ran into. And I want you to know all of that so you know the exact truth so it strengthens your faith. So whatever details are here are left here for us to read and be strengthened by them. Eight specific conviction-building occasions of the early church's first organized, I call it organized missionary effort because we had Philip running off places, we had people scattering because of Stephen's persecution, but here they kind of rally together and organize and say, we're going. Eight specific conviction-building occasions of the early church's first organized missionary effort. And here's what we're going to do, beloved. <laughs> I feel very Puritan this week, you know? <laughs> I feel very puritanical. Those of you that don't take notes are feeling very relieved today. Those of you that take notes, I'm sorry. <laughs> Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to look at each of these occasions, these conviction-building occasions, and we're going to pose three questions to each occasion, and we're going to talk about it, okay? Three questions that we're going to answer at the end of each occasion. The first one is this. How should this passage affect our convictions about the local church and missions? That's the first question we're going to answer. When we're done with each occasion, we're going to say, how should this affect our view of the local church and missions? It doesn't really, care, doesn't really matter our perspective of what we think missions is, what we think the local church should look like. All that matters is how God describes it, and as He sent the apostles out, how it became ordered gives us instruction. We don't want to improve upon God and what He laid out. Secondly, what ways does this passage expose how the church has drifted from pure and simple devotion to Christ? And I'm asking a polemical question, not because I want to stand up here and say, oh, look how much better we are than other people. That has nothing to do with it. But truth refutes error. And the only way you can identify what error needs to be refuted is if you talk about it, identify, and then take the truth to it, which was Paul's concern that Corinth wasn't thinking discerningly. This is a life of conviction. You see where there's something wrong, you build a conviction, you take the truth to it, and you apply it. So what ways does this passage expose how the church has drifted from local church and missions? Three, how does this passage implicate my life <laughs> as far as my role in the local church and in missions? So we're going to go corporately and then individually. So let's look at these conviction-building occasions. We'll probably get through two this morning or so. First one is this, conviction-building occasion one. Paul and Barnabas are sent by a local church. Paul and Barnabas are sent by a local church. And by the way, this isn't all going to be pretty. We're even going to see a defection in the middle of this missionary journey. And we're going to consider how God uses difficult circumstances to expose even believers' weak faith to grow them. So it's going to be positive, and it's going to get messy. So, conviction building occasion one. Paul and Barnabas are sent by their local church. We're back in Antioch, beloved. We're going to see two Antiochs. As I described to you, I merged them at one point in some of my series, but we're actually going to see two Antiochs emerge over the couple weeks. This is the main Antioch in your New Testament, the main one we studied. They're the missions hub in the book of Acts. So notice verse 1, chapter 13. Now there was at Antioch, that most faithful little church in the Bible, prophets, teachers, and then he lists them. So prophets and teachers, who were they? And Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, 
Lucius of Cyrene, Manin, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tatriarch, and Saul. And then notice this group of men, who I'll describe in a moment, they were in a, a time of devoted worship. Verse 2. While they were ministering the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit came and spoke to them. So let's stop for a minute. Let's consider those men for a second, just to think about them. Because as you're thinking about what this tells me about the local church, what this tells me about early leaders, what this tells me about these men, I think you're going to find this is a pretty eclectic group God brought together to lead in Antioch. So, Barnabas, what do we know about him? Anyone remember? Where did we first see Barnabas? Way back when. You remember? Acts 4, probably saved under Peter's preaching when he came to Jerusalem. And right out of the gate, he's this godly example that's a contrast to Ananias and Sapphira. So he really rises on the scene as this godly believer who's come in. And notice he's from Cyprus. We're going to be going to Cyprus in this missionary journey. And he's from there. And he's going to go back and minister to his home island. Next, Simon, Simeon, some... Some uh, Notice how he's defined here. He's probably, scholars would believe, African in origin, the name Niger, which means dark or complex skin. And so you've got really someone maybe even saved somewhere in Africa who's gathered up here and joined this church. Lucius came from Cyrene in North Africa. He may have belonged to the synagogue of the Cyrenians in Jerusalem, but came to Antioch fleeing the Jerusalem uh, persecution under Stephen. Manin, look at this interesting comment here. He was probably some type of royalty or hang around the royal office. He was, notice a little bit of comment about him there. His explanation of where he grew up. Notice, he was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. So interestingly enough, he grew up around some type of royalty, grew up in some type of palace life. So God's saving from North Africa, somewhere else in Africa. He's saving from Cyprus. He's saving from Greek-speaking Jews. He's saving from royalty. He's gathering up men and pulling them together in the church. And then notice Saul, the murderer turned church planner. So now consider that group. Right out of the gate, you can just appreciate that in Antioch, God gathered together a whole bunch of different men. But what I love about that is they all had one mission. As we're going to see, they were about strengthening their own local church or sending out men to plant other churches and strengthen other churches. That's it. They were all about the church. So notice, there's apostles there and there's these elders, we might say. Verse 2. While those men... We're ministering to the Lord and fasting. Ministering is just a dedicated time. They set apart time to not eat for a bit, to pray and to think. And here's what's interesting. They were clearly probably thinking about more churches, expansion. How do we get the gospel to these other places? How do we strengthen our own local church? And then notice it says the Holy Spirit showed up. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit spoke. And you may think, okay, what's going on here? The Holy Spirit speaking. Twice here the Holy Spirit's going to speak. Anytime you really see an audible voice coming from the Spirit throughout your New Testament, it identifies an audible voice. When the Holy Spirit speaks here and you have prophets involved, it's implying that the Spirit came through the mind and heart of the prophets. Remember, we didn't have our canon. 
Revelation wasn't closed. Apostles and prophets are still very active. And so the Spirit spoke through these prophets and came into their mind and heart during this time of meditation and essentially um, came over them and gave a prophecy of what He wanted the next steps of the church to be. So whatever happens is God's heart for the nations coming through these prophets. So notice, here's what the Holy Spirit said through the prophets. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. I love that because immediately you can appreciate that Barnabas and Saul's work, beloved, was ordained by God and God called them and sent them on this work explicitly. They knew what they were to do. And now consider this. The Spirit came and took the best men from Antioch. <laughs> Barnabas and Paul would have been their premier shepherds that had been in town there. And the Spirit came and said, I want you to send your best men to go out and you're going to take the gospel and plant churches around all these other places. You may say, okay, um, how do we parallel that, Pastor? How do, we, how do we think through this calling when we don't sit here and pray on a Sunday night and we're going to send out a pastor somewhere? We're going to send out Rusty Duckworth soon. I don't know if you know, but he's gotten a job to go to another church. And we've sent out Matt Johnson and we've sent out Dave Temple and we've sent out all these guys and we have this formal service where we're implying just like this that we believe the Spirit is sending them to a location. You say, well, how do we come to that conclusion? Because here it says they're called and they know it because a prophet speaks. So how do we today come to that same kind of conclusion and represent this? Well, the scriptures also affirm calling, right? Subjectively, how does one know they're called? Come on, class. Desire. 1 Timothy 3.1 If anyone has a strong craving to do what? If anyone has a desire to be an overseer. What's an overseer? An elder. What's an elder's heart? The sheep. the sheep. So it's not just I have a call to do big things in ministry. It's not just I have a call for influence. I have a call to the sheep. People talk about calling all the time. A man knows he's called if he's burdened for the sheep to be an overseer, to feed, to lead, to protect, to guide. That's on his heart. So subjectively men are called today because the Spirit puts a burden in their heart for the sheep. I remember when I was working in the secular world and I was trying to wrestle through my calling, someone asked me, you know, when you're working and you're out and you're out working in the working world, it is on your mind and heart all the time wanting to find ways to detach yourself in whatever way you can for the sheep? I'm like, yeah. Are you saying that the church is your first love more than anything? If you could do anything else with your life, you'd want to be with the sheep? I'm like, yes. They're like, that's probably an affirmation of a subjective calling, that you're called to the church. Well, Darren didn't just come up with that. I didn't think, ooh, I'm going to think about myself as called and stick this burden in my heart. No, the Spirit of God tapped me on the shoulder, <laughs> metaphorically, <laughs> and said, in my heart, I'm going to put a burden on you that you cannot shake until you're in ministry. That's the subjective side. But that's not enough in a New Testament calling without the objective side where the church, which is what's happening here, was affirming my character, was ready to be in ministry. There was a calling that the desire wasn't driven by ambition, but it was driven by the sheep. And there was qualifications. They could watch my life and see that my character measured up to what the Scriptures call. So when we look at this passage, we can say, we may not have a prophet coming and speaking, but you have subjective and objective callings all through your New Testament where men are subjectively burdened and objectively by the church confirmed. 
Stick that in your mind when we get to our final three questions. Okay, let's move on. So they fasted and prayed, verse 3. They laid hands on them and sent them away. Who laid hands on the men that were going? Beloved, the church. Who sent them? The church. Verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit through the affirmation with these men, they're working in conjunction, they went out to Seleucia, the port that launched them, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Okay, so let's stop for a second. Okay, let's think about this. Very brief description. But Paul's missionary journey began by a local church sending him. So, first question. How should a passage like this affect our convictions about local church and missions? How should it affect our... If we're just looking at not straying from the New Testament model, how should a passage like this affect our view of the local church and missions? Robert. The local church and Who sends men? The church. Who affirms those men? And raises them up. Who raises them up? Equipping. Who equips them? Who affirms them? Who sends them? Not just the pastors, but the entire congregation. Yeah. What's implying here is there's an affirmation and ascending because when they return from this missionary journey, the whole church of Antioch comes back thrilled to hear what's going on. Not a missions agency. Missions agencies can be fine. They can be helpful. That's fine. But they are only as good as if a local church affirms the person that is going, character calling, gifting, readiness, and their mission. They were being sent out to do what? Well drilling? I'm serious. Social ministry? What is New Testament missions? They were being sent out to do what? You've read Acts 13 and 14. To do what? Preach, shepherd, plant churches, establish leaders in those churches, strengthen those churches. Their second missionary journey we're going to see in a few weeks, it rises up because they want to go strengthen the churches that were planted. Missions is all about the church. So beloved, how should this affect our view of who confirms that a man should go to missions? How? God through His church. God through His church. So what are we saying about people that get sent all over the globe without a church affirming their character, their calling, their gifting, their readiness, and that their desires to go are of Him? It's not a biblical view of missions. They may get sent, and God may even use them in spite of it. But if we're not, if 2 Corinthians 11, if we're not going to drift from the pure and simple devotion of how Christ wants His church to be built, then the local church sends missionaries. The local church affirms missionaries. The local church sends missionaries. When people come to me and ask me for support of them in missions, I've always got a big heart. I love to get behind supporting ministry. But I want to know what elders are affirming their character, their calling, their gifting, their readiness, who's affirming them. And if they have a missions agency sending them, that's great. That can be a vehicle. But I want to know what their local church says about it. And I want to know they're going to do missions. Planting churches, strengthening churches. That's missions. 
This, this invades us a bit, right, in the broad, eclectic view of what we call missions today. And I, I'm not trying to pick on anybody. I'm just saying if all you were was a church in 74 AD and you're in Italy and you're saying, what are we supposed to do next? You wouldn't come up with a social program. You'd figure out how to raise up men to send them out to preach, to see people saved and churches planted, or you'd send them to strengthen churches. That's all you'd do. That's all you'd propagate. Okay, so say on the backside. What does this passage expose about ways we've drifted from pure and simple devotion to Christ as it comes to the local church and missions? How have we drifted? Come on. We have entire organizations that try and get the passions cranked up of young people who don't even have their church ascending them. They go to a conference and they get cranked up. Then we send them to a missions agency to send them. And then we launch them into foreign missions without a church being involved in the process. We've missed the New Testament model. Dave. Yeah, I think there's a lot of um, when you do uh, just go on those uh, type of trip, trips, there's, it's a lot easier. So there's a lot of um, that's such a good point you know what's going to happen on this trip you're going to have suffering difficulties beating John Mark's going to defect because it gets so difficult <laughs> Paul and Barnabas are going to try and hold the line Paul's going to get beat up and drug out of town and get back and going and almost get killed <laughs> it's hard maybe perhaps that's that's why it's so Yeah, these men were being sent to see churches established and they knew it was going to be hard. Yep. Noah. People also romanticize the idea of traveling and seeing new locations and they call that burden for missions. Yeah. These men were affirmed by the church. This is why the church affirms you. Why do you want to go to missions? What's your heart for missions? What are you trying to do? Is it what God says missions is? All of that happens and gets flushed out in church life, which is a protection for someone so that a romantic novel idea of missions doesn't launch them out to spend their life doing something different than God's design. Remember, Satan, what he wants to do is a simple, slight drift to make something look like it's right, but it's actually drifted from the biblical model. Beloved, if all we had was Acts, if all we had was First and Second Timothy and Titus, if all we had was our New Testament, and all of missions and local church life came under that, it would, it would look a lot different. Okay? Third question. How does this passage implicate my life as my role in the local church and missions? What would be your role then? If you're not going, then you're doing what? <laughs> bandwidth issue if you're not going then you're doing what? Praying. you're praying you're sending and you're supporting sometimes we think oh I can't be involved in missions unless I go do a short term mission trip or I go but if you're here at Grace Emmanuel we're a, we're a missionary sending church so you being a part of seminary students training, you praying for our missionaries that are currently out there, you supporting by going on trips in local churches that are out there, you're a part of a New Testament model of missions. So you're either, to use John Piper's line, you're either going, sending, or disobeying. <laughs> 
I love that. If you'd have been in any church in Acts, they would have just been thinking about, okay, how do we strengthen this church and how do we see new churches planted? I love going to Argentina down there. They've planted like 16 churches. Whenever we go down there, all that they're talking about is how do we strengthen our current church or how do we see another neighborhood be impacted with a healthy church and a healthy shepherd? Okay, we don't have anybody, but there's a need with a neighborhood. We need to raise up men so we can send them there, affirm, affirm them, train them, send them. Do you guys know that the Lord's allowed us to see churches, you know, planted in Florida, in, in Naples, in Venice, and in Orlando. I mean, Matt Borgstrom would be a great model. We, we just sent him with a desire in his heart. <laughs> and a few people up there that had called and said, we need a pastor. And he went to Orlando. <laughs> this is what New Testament missions is. Okay, that's the first convicting building, conviction building occasion. Paul and Barnabas were sent out by a local church. Conviction to, oh man, it's, I can't believe this. Where'd my time go, Mike? Okay, let me just introduce it. We'll see what happens. Okay, this will be this will be exciting. We'll see what happens here. Conviction building occasion two: the word of God polarizes and plants. The Word of God polarizes and plants. What are we to be about on missions? Preaching the Word and seeing it plant churches and seeing it polarize hearts. That's what the Word of God does in missions. Notice. Let's keep reading. They're sent. They're about to go. And they head off. Verse 5. When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the Word of God in the synagogues of the Jews and they also had John as their helper. Notice that background there. John's going to come up a few times here. And you want to notice that Luke is backing up and saying, I don't want you to miss that Paul and Barnabas went, but a young disciple named John was also with them. And the word there, beloved, for helper, it's, it's emphatic language to describe a faithful assistant. One that you could trust, that could be relied on. The words, the underrower word group. The person that you could put down in the bottom of the boat and you were convinced they were just going to keep cranking to make sure the boat kept going. That same John, when trouble comes, is going to run shortly here. I want you to notice something, though, that may give us an indication of why John ran. Look at what they're doing in missions. They're proclaiming the Word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. So to unsaved Jews, they're preaching, and he documents John's with them. And then Luke just skips on and says, they, verse 6, they started going through the whole island, maybe indicating that their first stop had no fruit. Not everywhere you go in missions, even when the word is preached, is going to lead to soft hearts. It might just lead to hard hearts that people stiff-arm the truth and push back against them. Because their other stop, Luke's going to document all kinds of fruit. This first stop, we see no fruit. But, later on, Barnabas is going to go back and visit this same location. So we could say this, Paul's planting and preaching... They may be watering, and later on, God causes growth, and they go back and minister to churches that get established. But he just moves on, so we'll leave it for now. We'll move on. <laughs> Notice what he says next. Verse 6. And when they'd gone on through the whole island... You, you can't even appreciate that statement without understanding geography. Going on the whole island means that they went on for about 100 miles. <laughs> 
Stopping and preaching and teaching and shepherding and sowing seeds of the Word of God. What was the mission of missions? To see souls saved so that churches could be planted. And these faithful brothers went about preaching Jesus the Nazarene has died and risen. All need to repent and come to Him. Their mission was to preach. And they went on for some 100 miles and then they stopped in Paphos. Notice, Paphos, Paphos, the capital. Now notice what they found in the capital here of Cyprus. The capital, interestingly enough, is where all of your, your delegates would have been and your, your uh, leaders, and there was also a false teacher they ran into. Notice, they found, verse 6, or came upon, maybe be a better translation, a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus. That's a, probably a designation he may have given to himself or maybe it was his name. His name was that. Maybe it gave him to himself. Maybe he was trying to propagate his views more. He was this, this, um, this magician of sorts. He, he would go in and give false teaching and then have some type of magic that he would do. He claimed to be Jewish and he had maybe some Jewish theology embedded in it, but he was just propagating air. And notice verse 7, who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. Stop there for a second. Don't you think it's interesting that he describes this delegate, this leader, this proconsul is the someone that served under the governor to oversee the area. And so you've got this scene set up where they're going around ministering and preaching. And this, this delegated authority who's being influenced by false teaching is described in contrast. So you've got a false teacher put forth and you've got this delegate who's noticed a man of intelligence. It's the word for prudent, wise, um, thoughtful. And I wonder if that's put in there because we're about to see him saved and I just envision maybe he becomes the, one of the elders of the early churches in this area and he puts a little description in there to describe a level-headed guy that he was even in his unbelief. I don't know. But it's an interesting positive comment to put in when he's about to come to Christ. And look at this delegate, what he did. And we'll, we'll just make a couple comments then stop here. He summoned Barnabas and Saul and noticed what he wanted to hear and what their mission was about. He sought to hear the Word of God. That means that Paul and Barnabas, what they were known for and what they were doing in town was preaching God's message. And this guy heard, there's a couple guys out there that are stirring things up and they're preaching the Word of God. I want to hear what God has to say. And he summons them in. But notice verse 8. The Word of God starts to polarize and there's always opposition. There's always satanic assaults. Verse 8. But Elmas, the magician, which interesting here, it's probably a rough Greek translation um, for the interpreter of dreams or something is the way they're describing it because it says here, for so it is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Interestingly enough, look at verse 9. You have a scene set forth where Paul's coming to preach and Satan's bringing deception to try and turn this man away from hearing the truth. And look at verse 9. But Saul, also known by Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, look at what he says to this man who's trying to deceive this guy who's listening to the truth. He fixed his gaze upon him, verse 9, and said, Now, just appreciate the fact that 
the Spirit came over Paul. So this is God's heart against air, okay? And just look at the descriptive language here. You are full of deceit and fraud. You are a son of the devil, an enemy of righteousness. Will you not cease to make crook the straight paths of the Lord? I'll go into more detail all that means, but just consider God's heart against error and confusion. You're full of deceit and fraud. You're a liar, a master manipulator, and you have a personal agenda. You're a son of the devil. Your father is Satan and you're his evil spawn. You're an enemy of righteousness. You oppose all that's right before God. You're his mortal enemy. Will you not cease to make crook the straight path of the Lord? You're fighting against God, competing for souls. You will pay. That was God's heart against a man that was trying to stop the word of God getting to this, this authority. We'll stop there for now, but I just want to back up and just you to consider a couple things here as we stop and we'll look in more detail. What was the Word of God already beginning to do when it came to do its work in this new location? It was polarizing hearts, right? You got one hard heart represented who's opposing the truth and one soft heart that's softening. That's what the Word of God does. And what were the apostles spending their time on doing when they were doing missions? The Word. The Word of God polarizes and plants. So, let me just ask the question. You think about it, talk about it over lunch. How should this conviction-building occasion affect our view of the local church and missions? What should we expect is going to come when we preach and teach? Opposition. Opposition. And the Word of God is going to do two things, isn't it? It's going to soften some hearts, it's going to harden others, and it's going to guarantee oppositions coming, right? Every time. But what else does it teach us about what mode we're to be in all the time? What were they about? Bringing the Word. And when air came against the Word, did Paul cower? Did he get fearful? Did he stand back? No, he stood at the threat of a soul being damaged by false teaching. Do you think the culture of the church today has become a little too soft on false teaching in light of what Paul said about false teaching? <laughs> You're a son of the devil. You're a spawn of Satan. You're standing against God. You're going to hell because of what you're doing, basically, if you don't repent. seems today we're almost more concerned sometimes about the tone of what is being said than the content. I'm not saying we need to be belligerent, but I do find it interesting that when God takes over the heart of Paul and the passive verb ideas, that His Spirit takes over His life, what God thinks about someone infecting a soul with false teaching is that severe. And when the Word of God comes, we know that it's going to polarize and penetrate hearts. So we'll talk more about that next week and what it teaches. There's lots more conviction-building events, lots more to look about these moments. Here's what I'd encourage you to do in 13 and 14. Do this for me by next week. Here's your homework. I want you to read through Acts 13 and 14 and just jot down, if you think about it, or make mental notes about ways that these questions could be answered. How should this shape my convictions about the local church and missions? How does this expose wrong ways today the church has drifted from pure and simple devotion? And how does this implicate my life and my role in local church and missions? And then next week we'll begin to look at a few more. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for just the brief time in your word and just some uh, encouraging ways to think about Maybe not in as much of a classic sermon form, but just even helping us discuss and think about details of what it would have been like to receive the book of Acts and be shaped in this way.
and how far we've often drifted today from what we call the local church and what we call missions and what it's supposed to be about. Lord, no one in this group, I would want them to leave and go out and, and in some way imagine that they're better than others, that we're better than others because we've arrived upon these things. All we're trying to do is look at Your Word. And when we look at Your Word and we evaluate so often today in our sadness how people have drifted from a view of missions in the local church, we don't want to win battles against them. We want to win their perspective so they align their heart with you so that they honor you more with their life. That's all we care about. We care about souls and we care about sheep. We care about protecting what you say is pure and right and we don't want to drift in our own lives. So thank you for Acts. Thank you for Paul, his courage. Thanks for this first missionary journey. The details that you decided to include, you knew we most needed. So help us meditate on those, Lord. And um, as we go into here from Pastor Todd this morning, Lord, shape our convictions even as we hear from his psalms how we're to praise you even in light of all that you've done. In your name we pray. Amen.